Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. All right, Matt, are you ready for the first question? Well, you asked me the first one last week. Okay, so you go first. <clears throat> Who in your life can you be the most vulnerable with? Can I call my wife and ask her what the correct <laughs> I answer is? have a is? lifeline. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, she is the one that I'm the most vulnerable with. She's, she's the one that knows me, gets to see it all, yeah. the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's the way it should be. And still loves you. Yes. I, well, I hope so. Are you ready for your question? Bring it on. I'm going to give you the easier one. Thank you, John. <clears throat> Which one of your parents' personality traits do you want to keep or get rid of? Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Which, which one of my, my which parents? One, which one of your parents' personality traits do you want to keep or get rid of? Mm. Okay, I'll go with keep. Yeah, that's a that's a safe one. That's a positive one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a list of about twenty that I want to get rid of. Yeah, right. I want to let go of mom. Sorry. Well, um, so um, my mom was a lifelong learner, um, and she. I just I remember getting up at high school and wrestling and 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 having to get up early to go and work out, and I never got up earlier than my mom. Mm-hmm. And every time I got up, I'd come downstairs. There'd always be coffee on. I could always smell the coffee. Um, and she always had books open. Mm-hmm. And so she always just read. And when she was, uh, when the cancer in her brain took away her ability to read, um, she just uh, life hacked it and got books on tape. <laughs> wow. And she would listen to books on tape. And so I think that's one of the things. And because of that, um, she was always curious. She was just curious about things, yeah. and so I think um, I think my mom's deep curiosity about life and those things is something I want to keep. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, Lent starts this week. It does. Ash Wednesday's tomorrow. What's your favorite thing about Lent? Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> Can this. you have like, good things to say about Lent? It's fasting the and pain. penitence and. I, you know what, I, I don't think that we, and I really truly believe, if we don't understand Ash Wednesday and the process of Lent, that uh, we have any idea what the resurrection is. Mm-hmm. And so most of us want to rush through Lent and get to the resurrection, right? But there's this whole journey through the wilderness where we begin to realize who God is, that God is God in the midst of absence, yeah. right? And, and, and it's that God, there's that phrase um, that where Jesus was led into the desert. Um, the, the, my understanding of that is that the translation can also be that he was cast out, like a, like a person drives like cattle. Interesting. That he was driven into the desert. Mm-hmm. And in that place, he, um, he learned who he was, spoken, you know, you're my beloved son. He didn't get that from being spoken. He got that in the desert. Yeah, that was all put to test. He was out there vulnerable. Yeah. The, the lack of food, the fasting puts you in a very vulnerable state. Yeah. I'm in a bad place right now because if I'm 30 minutes before my next meal, I start getting lightheaded. <laughs> I mean, I am like carb addicted. <laughs> hey, you the, and your plant-based the, the, diet. Hey, dude, the pain's I am, real. The pain is the, real, dude. Whatever I, I got going on, I've got to... 
I've got to give it up because it's, you realize you are, I mean, there's a moment you hit the wall with when your body is in prime condition like mine. And this is, this is the carb, uh, saturation diet. And when you hit that spot, it's like, you know, okay, I'm meeting somebody. I'm going to meet Stephanie for lunch at 12 o'clock and at 1115, you're like, I'm going to hurt somebody. You're hangry. I don't find a carb. And you, you could push through, but it's like, I'm going to pass out. I think I'm going to pass out. So your Lent, I understand the pain of your Lent. <laughs> well, and I think that's an important thing for what, what do uh, you give up? Do you fast on, at Lent? Do you give things up? I used to. Um, I usually, what I do now. Good grief, your whole life is a fast now with this plant-based diet. I know, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what I do at Lent now is I'll read, uh, I, I read a book. I've read a book for the last five years, uh, every Lent, that I really like. It's a small book. What's it and called? It's 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 Rowan Williams' book on the Desert Fathers. It's called uh, something in Honey Cakes. Honey Cakes. I love the Desert Fathers. So it's really it's really small, but it's really it's, Rowan Williams. Yeah, it's a Rowan Williams book. And then um, so you add to your practice. Yeah. At Lent. Yeah. Which is great. I I tried to give up chips and salsa one uh, one Lent. Hmm. It made a fool of me. I realized that I was absolutely powerless. <laughs> like, like a week and a half in, I, I was, I was, I was, it was, I was, it was, I was done. I learned, you know, a long time ago, I would give things up. Like, uh, I'm not going. I'd go on a diet for Lent. I need to lose 20 pounds. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so Lent's great. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna drink alcohol. I'm not. I'm gonna go on a diet uh, for 40 days. And then someone told me, you know. Uh, that's not really the... It's abs for it's Jesus. The, it's not the deep purpose of Lent. You're not supposed to do it for yourself. It's supposed to empty you out. It's supposed to be a sacrifice. And I'm, I'm still struggling with that. So, But I think when you, whenever you take something out of your life, it should lead you to something. Yes. The whole purpose of fasting is mm-hmm. to do without uh, the TV or the latte or the, the drink or the food or whatever, but it should lead you to something. Yeah, yeah. And so I think what will we give up during the season of Lent that leads us to something yeah, more? That's right. And what am I, what, Lent has always been a thing for me. It's like, what am I in my life? Am I using or um, behaviors that I'm involved in that are covering up something that maybe the Holy Spirit wants to touch and say, I can, I, I want to do work here, hmm. you know? And, and a lot of times that's just with, a lot of times it's my inability to sit still. It's a relentless, busy schedule, yeah. you know? Um, that provides me meaning, but it doesn't provide me a lot of depth. And so I think the last collection of years, it's been to sit in, in the presence of love and be loved. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, so interesting. I, I found this uh, article. I've been really into the Pew Research studies since yeah. what we talked about, the conversations that you and I want to have really as we think about the church being relevant in the world, generational divides, growing secularism, growing or, or less church affiliation and less mm-hmm. attendance. And people feel the church is not relevant. And what fascinated me is not just that, but this, I, I was digging through this and I found this fascinating study about where Americans find meaning in life. And what I liked about it, they asked the question, what makes life meaningful. 
Um, answering such a big question might be challenging for many people. Even among researchers, there's little consensus on the best way to measure that. So traditional survey questions are close-ended. They give you yes, a list no. of things or choices, right? So they did this different. They did closed-end questions and they did open-ended questions. So they allowed people to basically, uh, with their own words, define or describe what makes their lives feel meaningful, fulfilling, or satisfying. And what I thought was really interesting is across both surveys, whether it was open or closed, mm -hmm. they had a clear and consistent answer. Now, before I give you the answer, let me ask you this question. What makes life meaningful for you? So I'll answer this in the way that um, Eric Erickson does. Um, a job and the love of a good woman. <laughs> a job and the love of a good woman. Yeah. So I think like really meaningful work, mm -hmm. like that my life is like, I'm not, um, not that this for my personality and the way that I'm hardwired, like doing repetitive um, things on a, an assembly line would, would feel like, you know, it'd feel like I'd be in a second level of hell or something. Right. So that I'm in a job where the question is about creativity and about teamwork and about being involved in a grander vision. Mm -hmm. Some of the things I love about working here already the, the last month with you, I just think, Oh, the playground is big. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, this is great. Um, and then I think the love of a good woman. I mean, I, I, I fell in love with someone that, uh, it's my best friend and, um, and we've had rough times and awesome times and we're going to stick it out, you know? So I yeah. think those are the two things that give me meaning. Speaking of the love of a good woman, last week <laughs> you asked me what dating advice I would give my yeah. younger self. <laughs> How did that go My wife informed me that I didn't give the correct answer. <laughs> Which so, was? <laughs> so the correct answer is I wouldn't do anything differently at all because I ended up with the best woman of course, in the world. That's right. So I just wanted to go on record officially and yes. say that you said that you just didn't. You, know, did, you yeah, presuppose that where you way. ended, but that was that yeah. was where what I meant. I mean, it was was obvious. They ended up with the it was perfect. Obvious. Yeah, yeah. I thought so. Yeah, I did. But too. she didn't. Oh, that, that's problematic. <laughs> so the study, <clears throat> the study was fascinating, and what they did is in both the open-ended questions and the closed-ended questions, they found the most popular answer is clear and consistent across. All ages, across no matter what demographic, socioeconomic, socioeconomic, race, everything. Everything, okay. Uh, and, and it was that Americans are most likely to mention family hmm. yeah. when asked what, what makes life meaningful in the open-ended question. And they're most likely to report that they find a great deal of meaning in spending time with family in the closed-ended question. So huh. both the open-ended and the closed-ended were family. And look at this. It's not even close. Yeah. yeah. By a factor of uh, it's 70% yeah. on the open-ended question. So if you just if you ask the question and you let anyone answer it the way they want, 70% of people say what gives my life a mm. sense of meaning, sense of purpose, fulfilling, satisfaction, it's family. You know what's also interesting in that is that caring for pets um, is uh, um, scores higher than your religious faith. <laughs> did it really? It did. Uh, on that, on the uh, yes, on the open-ended. <laughs> well, you know, pets are family. That's true. Pets as family that takes on different meaning because some pets are family 
like, like your most adorable young child. Yeah. In my case, I have a grumpy old grandpa uh, Pomeranian yeah. that yeah. lives in my house yeah. who thinks he owns everything and should sit wherever he wants to sit and take my chair whenever he wants to take my Absolutely. chair and Absolutely. make me stand up when I don't want to have to stand up, make yeah. me move when I don't have to move. I've got a, a hundred sleeps all day. <laughs> <laughs> That's who you want to be when you're in your gas next life. In, in odd times. That's who you're going to be when you retire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my dog. It's Cooper, my dog. So it's like family. Yeah. It is, it's like family. What's interesting is earlier today, I haven't done this much, but it, I've already had several people respond. And I asked this on, on my Facebook okay. page. I'm interested in exploring what it means to live a satisfying life. Mm-hmm. What about your life do you currently find meaningful, fulfilling, mm-hmm. satisfying? What keeps you going and why? Now, remember, on the survey, the open-ended, family by far, then it was career, money, spirituality and faith, friends, yeah. activities and hobbies, health, home and surroundings, and learning. And so this is just asking people on Facebook. And here are the first one, people. People, especially my husband, mm. my relationships, and my dog. Thank you very much, she said, her dog. <laughs> Yes, that's a person, she says, my family. Uh, another, another person said, continually learning, forming bonds with others. There's your relational aspect. And someone who's a hospice chaplain said, the gift of witnessing people work out things at the end of their lives, hmm. teaching me about the really real. All of these basically have this same component, is relationships in what matters, what gives a meaning, satis- yeah. satisfaction in life. It, that's really interesting because we're now in a, a culture where it's it's um, in so many ways we value things that are not sustainable for those things, right? And so we 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 have the tendency now. I think partly we're trying to figure out as a culture how to reconfigure those values and place those in a more central place. Hmm. And so when when my grandfather was was growing up and probably even my father, there was this deep sense that you left the family to go make money so that you could support the family, right? Yeah. And, um, and so that was the most important thing was career and money so that, um, and I think that within my generation, Gen X on, there's been this understanding that maybe there's a different way of, of constructing a life, you know, that, um, career, those things are important, but you can, you can achieve so much. And at the end of the day, there can be a deep sense of, um, of hollowness on the inside. And we have a world where that only works for you know, we, we want a world that works for everyone. Yeah. You know, not just a select few. So, yeah. When people get married, a lot of times we read this, this passage of Scripture from Ecclesiastes 4, mm-hmm. uh, 9 through 12. Two are better than one mm-hmm. because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift the other one up. But woe to one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. And again, if two lie together to keep warm... But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against the other, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And read that in a lot of weddings, which I think, uh, as I heard someone say recently, is too late to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Abandon hope, all ye who enter. Well, it's like they're standing up there going, wow, I didn't realize it was going to be that serious. Can I I have a moment? (laughs) rethink this, you know, but I, I, it drew me back. So the, 
spirituality, religion, mm-hmm. in all of its negative connotations in the world that people think of, of denominations or organizations or self-maintenance and looking out for yeah. yourself, one thing that faith communities provide is connection, is togetherness, is a bond of a community. Mm-hmm. And you can say family, but I think communal family yeah. and learning how to love I think that's I think that's something that the church needs to recapture. We we offer community for those who are already on the inside. Mm-hmm. How do we help create community for those in the world that are seeking community? Yeah. And and you think about when Jesus talks about community and family, <clears throat> he's not just talking about folks that share the same kind of DNA structure, right? So there's all this kind of what Paul begins to talk about adoption, right? These folks that are grafted in the whole Old Testament about the widow, orphan, stranger, those folks that don't belong that are now belonging, mm-hmm. right? And so in even the kingdom of God in Revelation, where um, John is talking about from every tribe and every nation, right? So there's a sense in which then the community of faith is not to be a similar or um, kind of um, same DNA structure, but it's folks that in some ways shouldn't belong together that find deep belonging together. Yeah, And that then mirrors to the world the grand possibility of what the world could look like if love becomes the center of us, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the thing I think that that one of the things I think that has been shaped shaped my imagination about the gospel and and who Jesus calls family. You know? Well, that's it's exactly the church in Corinth that Paul was trying to pastor best he could. Right. You've got Jews and you've got Greeks and you've got Romans and you have pagan tribal religious yeah. groups and they're all coming together now as the church following Jesus mm-hmm. and they all have different practices and they all bring different cultures and experiences and ways of living life and they get in the way of each other and it becomes problematic and Paul has to deal with that. But his remedy, when you read in Corinthians, the remedy is always love. It's always, you're a body, you're one, you know, and first Corinthians 13 is not just the wedding chapter. Uh, uh, Love is patient, love is kind, all this. It, that's his, that's the center fulcrum of the whole pastoral response to Mm -hmm. all of these people coming together with all their diverging cultural practices, sexual immoralities that they bring from the culture and eating the meat sacrificed to idols. And he's barely holding it together, but he does. Yeah. It's interesting to me, like when, when I was, uh, did my study in development that, um, we, um, even at the very beginning, there's cell division that becomes a relationship. So when the, the single cell divides into two that begins human, the process of beginning human life, it is a relationship between cells. Hmm. And that relationship just grows and becomes much more complicated so that then when that body grows inside of that woman, um, there is already a relationship that's happening. And then we understand differentiation developmentally happens when that baby looks at the mother and says, wait, that's not me. Right. And that I'm. I'm not that thing that is feeding me and is causing me life. I'm different from that. But we only know that in relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of the American self-made human being, the autonomous you know, individual, is absolutely antithetical, not just to the gospel, but to the way of life, the way that God created life um, itself. And one of the things, when, a lot of the young people that I know and relate to, one of the things that they ask, and even my daughters, it's like, how do you find the right person in your life? Not only right. for in your relationship, 
but how do you find the right people to be around? And how do you find the right person for me, for me, for me, for me, for me, for me, right? We are this narcissistic center. Let me look for all the people for me instead of trying to become the right person for someone yeah. else. Yeah. So you, I told you you were smart. That stuff about the baby and the cells was like, <laughs> we just read differently, dude. Wow, man, that's right? really I, good stuff. I, that's, I mean, no, that's great. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm struck by Thomas Merton who says that we graduate from these stages of love. When you talked about oh. the baby, it's yeah. like there's infantile love yeah. and infantile love is I love you for, uh, because you love me. Yeah. I love you because you, you love give me. me stuff. I love you. Yeah. Immature love is I love you for what it does for me. Mm. And Merton says mature love is I love you not for what it does for me, but I love you for what it does for you. Mm. And that's the per, the pure, perfect, yeah, mature yeah, yeah. love that yeah, we are yeah, yeah, to yeah, grow yeah, into. Yeah. And I think that when we think about how can I become the right person for people in the world, the most your most profound when you can be, uh, live and be and love more for others than for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think <clears throat> the world we live in <clears throat> is really, I mean, yeah. it's not, it's not, I don't want to dump on like millennials and Gen Zers. Oh, let's do, it. Gen let's X, do it. Come on. Boomers. <laughs> no, they don't. It, uh, my nephews don't like that. <laughs> to be dumped on? Well, yeah, they, yeah, you start talking about millennials, they get like, hold yeah. on now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they have a yeah. point. I think when I, when we were young, they were dumping on us. Baby boomers we were, were dumping slackers, on us. Right? We were horrible. slacker generation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just what goes around comes around. Now we get to be the old farts that <laughs> <laughs> back in my day. Yeah, we all Well I when I was going to school, I'd run upstairs two ways, uphill in the snow. That's right. Anyway, I think the I think what this says to me and is that we are not designed to do life alone. That's right. We are not designed to do life alone. Right. So there's this big lie that um, culture has has somehow promulgated that says, by ourselves we can get to a point where we don't need anybody else, and and mm-hmm. in a sense the American dream um, puts us all to sleep. It puts us all to sleep because we need each other, and not just like-minded folks. Again, that's this, this is the image of the gospel, where there are and one of the things about the church I think is is the great hope is that it's intergenerational, mm-hmm. it should be multiracial, it should be um, every kind of stratosphere of economics attached to that, right? So that when you show up, you're around um, folks that are working out their own selves in relationship with who they are in the world with folks that don't look like themselves. And so we're given to each other in that place. Yeah, right? we, and the church, church has got to do a better job. I shared the story about a young woman that I met, and it, it wasn't that, you didn't get the sense from her that she left church because she was angry or antagonistic was she just didn't feel like she belonged yeah. there anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think <clears throat> church, you know, church folk, uh, we, I'm just going to be honest. Come on. We don't make it easy for young yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, there, there was a guy, hmm. uh, not long ago, he came out of church and he goes, just want to let you know, preacher, there was a young family behind me. I turned around and told him if I wanted to hear your children, I'd come to your house. And I thought, well, thank you. Thank you well, for keeping the order. <laughs> here we, we're really trying to reach these young families, but that one is, not, is probably gone. It's strike one. That one's Two probably and gone. Three. And so I, I think we, we do. And, and I've even seen in churches, I've literally seen this happen. 
and, and, and heard the story where the children are singing on Sunday morning, right? And so the parents come early and they get a seat in the mm. front or the first or the second row. Mm. And someone will literally come up to them and say, That's um, my seat. Honey, you're in my seat. Yeah. And the young mother said, Oh, yeah, the kids are singing. I was just going to, do I need to move? She said, Yes, you do. Oh, tell me that didn't happen in this church. That was your old church, right? No. Dear Lord. It's happened here. <laughs> it happens in every church. I, 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 think I don't, even, I don't care different. how contemporary oh. <laughs> yeah. and smoke machines and fog machines and all that stuff you've got going on in your crazy man. It. There's still somebody got their seat. <laughs> this is my seat. <laughs> in these new hip churches, they got the sofas on yeah, the yeah. front. They just put their That's coffee down. <laughs> I mean, you can see people, they show up early and they camp out. They will not go get a donut or refill their coffee because I can't lose my sofa seat. Which I think is really interesting because like in the first century, one of the things that they started killing Christians over is that they um, they weren't saving seats for themselves in a sense, right? That they, um, because the Spirit of God had been poured out and all these gifts were kind of happening, they weren't relating to each other based on class system, based on gender, based on all these other categories that the world says, this is what's of value. They began, as you said, to relate to each other on love. And that shifted everything. And so you'd have someone of high status in the Senate that was actually maybe had the gift of service. And a person of low status that was a tanner working with, with blood and unclean all the time that may have had the gift of leadership. And those folks had to relate to each other. And the only way that made that work is love, hmm. right? And so the church ought to be a place where we're saving seats, but we're saving them for people that are um, that are most needing. You know, yeah. I, I, I really wish my my greatest dream for the church is to listen to the mm-hmm. generations that are departing. Yeah. To listen to these studies where people are they're telling us why they're not coming to church, yeah. and we think, well, I'll just start some hip new. Uh, worship service with a rock band and a cool, funny stand-up comedian preacher and, and we'll just, we'll bring them in. This doesn't work. I don't know that really that's ever been the way to do it because again, it's still this consumeristic thing that we're building. We're coming for the product, right? Yeah. And now I wonder if we don't reclaim becoming a real community that is open to everyone that walks through the door. I just don't know that there's going to be a right. future for us. Right. I think we're going to be forced out of the building. We're going to be forced out of. We're going to have to. Sh- churches are going to shut down. They're going to yeah. close down, and s- some of them should. Yeah. And because it's going to force us to move out into the world, into yeah. the places and spaces, to butt up against real people. That's right. That's that's right. Because then, uh, and maybe as as folks as you say are departing, maybe we should go find where they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Because in some ways, like you had said last week, there's a general sense in which the church thinks that we own the product. And that we're dispensing the product to people. But if we really believe in the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh, then it's the world that God loves and God is in the world. And we follow the happenings of God into the world. Mm. And so the church then becomes a place not that we're dispensing product, but that we're, um, we're reminding each other of who we are in our baptism, yeah. who we are in our brokenness, and um, and how do we not lose touch with each other's hands in a world that can be quite dark, right? Yeah. Um, but but we can be light in those places. We can be um, healing in those places. I think it's important for us to struggle with what gives meaning, and then when we listen, that people are 
communicating, what gives meaning, the church needs to pay attention Uh and and realize that what people find the most meaning in are the things that we're really good at offering. We've just, we've lost our way on some of it. We've become too territorial. We've become too limiting. We've drawn too many lines. And if you, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, like coffee in church. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I was with someone this past week. We were in a meeting and the preachers were talking and a guy was saying, there's this, there's a lady and she stands there at the door and these young families are coming in if they have their coffee. Can't take your coffee to church. Can't take your coffee to church. Can't take your coffee to church. I'm serious. This is I like, I don't know if you've been in church lately, but this happens all the time. Yeah, 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 you, yeah. you you can't have your coffee in church. We can't, no, no, no drinks allowed here. <laughs> no drinks allowed. No drinks allowed. Here's the blood of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> no coffee here in my spit. But red grape juice? Yeah, all you know there long. was a church. There was a church in Columbus, Georgia, and they got new carpet and it was real light colored and they changed. They went to the white grape juice. Oh. Yeah. It was a big blow up in the church. Oh yeah. Because that can't really be the blood that of Christ if it's white grape juice. <laughs> it's and, Chardonnay. Chardonnay. <laughs> it's a white blood cells. <laughs> no, this wasn't even this wasn't even wine. This is not even wine. This this is uh, grape juice. And so they're funny. arguing of this can't be the blood of Christ because this is white grape juice. <laughs> so funny. I'm thinking, you know, the red grape juice. <laughs> this is grape juice. So good. Are you gone next week? Yes. Okay. It's gonna be you and Marlon. Do you want me to ask Marlon? Okay. Ask ask Marlon. Okay. Talk about Iconoclast. Okay. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy.